edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name's Eric Ruppold. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. So, last time, we looked at some arguments presented uh, from the LGBTQ perspective at a recent school board meeting here in Central Bucks, and I said that I wanted to do more of an in-depth look at ideologies that are prevalent in our culture today, and how does that relate to, let's say, the spiritual world, or to demons, or to things like that. And I do think that there's a bit of a mystery here, but I want to try to essentially go on an adventure, if you will, an investigation as to how the spiritual realm, the realm of principalities and powers and demons, how does that, from the Bible's perspective, how does that impact the physical world? How does that impact people and cultures and ideas? And does it relate to what we're seeing, let's say, in our culture today here in the West? So it's a, it's a tall order. Um, in fact, I'm trying to build a class for church um, with all my research here. And I want to do a little bit of my presentations here on the podcast, especially for those of you who aren't, you know, attending my church and able to attend the Sunday school class. So we're not going to have a a passage of the day today because we're going to look at a lot of passages, especially when we're touching on the topic of the spiritual realm, uh, demons, angels, things like that. You have to be very, very careful because there's a lot of pop culture. There's a lot of... Um, just outside influences and unbiblical perspectives and sources. I don't want to mess around with those. Maybe we'll look at um, sources outside of the Bible. But now, right now, I just want to take a look at what does the Bible present regarding the relationship between God, the demons, the humans, and culture overall. So let's begin with just a basic definition. This is this is where we're going to we're going to start off just understanding the word demon first. Okay? Cuz 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 the Greek New Testament uses this word daimones, daimon or demon. Okay? There's different kinds of spellings. Um and and since the Bible was written in Greek, it's important to know what the Greek word would have meant to those who heard the word uh, when the Bible talks about the word demon, okay? Now, the root of the word, daimones or daimon or daimon, uh, means to divide. It involves that concept or category, dividing things. Now, how the Greeks understood it, and we'll see how the Bible presents a similar but different perspective, the Greeks, as far as I can tell, and I'm no expert on Greek philosophy, but I think how the Greeks perceived this is that they viewed demons as simply lesser spirits, some kind of divine being, some kind of divinity, uh, divine beings that interacted with the world. They were not necessarily malevolent or good. Perhaps there was a mixture of them. Perhaps they were neutral, 
uh, an argument can be made that the Greeks sometimes understood them to be guiding spirits or some kind of teaching or tutelary spirit or a guardian. Uh, I read that Socrates included the concept of eros or passionate love as a daimon or a lesser spirit or divinity. Uh, so it's not just a physical thing or tied to a physical thing, but it could be tied to emotions or something internal to the to the human experience, like passionate love. Um, but also, it was tied to, in many ways, the physical world. I, I understand that Greek philosophy, in general, viewed the world as made up of uh, raw elements, kind of like fire, water, air, things like that. And, and we'll get into that later, because the Bible does describe Satan as the prince of the power of the air. Okay, in one of Paul's letters, he, he writes that, I believe that's Ephesians. But we'll get to that passage uh, later. So there's a sense in which the spiritual is tied to the physical and interacts with it in some sense. But it doesn't have to be physical material. It could be emotions or passions and things like that. Anyways, so that's kind of where the Greeks, I think, would have would have approached the topic. And again, it's not that demons are necessarily evil or malevolent. Uh, they could be good or neutral, depending upon how you interacted with them. But essentially, they were forces. They were powers that were kind of hidden in behind a lot of the things that are going on. All right. So from that concept of the word for demon, let's take a look at what the Bible has to say. And there's no particular place that we need to start, but I'm going to look at Ephesians chapter 6 because, well, it's a very well-known passage and it says a lot about what's going on. So, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, essentially it's the whole armor of God passage. So here's what the Apostle Paul says about this. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, and all circumstances take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. All right, so Paul here, and this is obviously not the only place that he talks about spiritual powers, but he makes it very clear that as Christians, we are not wrestling against flesh and blood, so it's not so much the material that we're dealing with. And in this particular case, he uses the word wrestle. In other passages, he uses warfare. 
you know, conquest and battle. Uh, he does use battle here as well, but in this case, it's wrestling, and it's not a physical grappling, physical wrestling uh, there, but it's against rulers and authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So he's not saying, well, it's against the rulers in the sense that we're waging war or wrestling against governors and and emperors and kings. Um, not like one would think. Kind of, sort of, yeah, but there's more behind it than that, and that's the cosmic powers of the present darkness and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so those are some of the things that we need to look at in more detail. And Paul uses the same kind of language throughout his letters. Romans 8 talks about, you know, what can separate us from the love of God, neither angels nor rulers nor death nor life, present, future, height or debt, any other created thing. Okay, so in that he kind of lumps in uh, the physical realm, height and depth, and the spiritual realm, rulers, things present, things to come, um, and then death and life itself, of course, and spiritual beings like angels. So persons, uh, time, physical qualities, the material world, none of that stuff can separate us from Christ. So he's kind of lumping it all together there, but it includes both the physical and the spiritual. Now, uh, Paul's not the only one who uses this language. We have the Apostle Peter, uh, and let's take a look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. So here's what Peter says, 1 Peter 3, 21 through 22, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. So let's hold on for a second there. He's, now he's saying the resurrection of Christ, who, so he's talking about Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So we have this picture being painted. Jesus on his throne at the right hand of the Father. And you have angels, you have authorities, you have powers. All right, those three kind of go together. And they've all been subjected. This is, this is past tense. All been subjected to him. All right. So now we also have the same language from Paul, particularly in the book of Colossians. So we have Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20, and here's what Paul has to say about that. He says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So again, we see the same language. So we have uh, all things were created, heaven on earth, okay, visible and invisible. So, so Paul is saying there are visible things and there are invisible things. 
There are thrones. There are dominions. There are rulers. There are authorities. Okay? And this is true in both heaven and on earth. And Jesus is the one that holds it all together. And those things were made for him. Now, how were these things brought in subjection to him? And Paul gets to this in the next chapter of Colossians, Colossians chapter 2. And here is what Paul says about Jesus here. He says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now here, here's where the action takes place. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt, that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Okay, so it's in Christ, particularly through the death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension of Christ, the payment of the debt of sin by canceling that and paying for it, Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities. They have nothing on us. They have nothing on God's people. They don't have any power or authority over God's people. And they've been put to shame. And this is, again, all tied to the crucifixion, resurrection, and the reign of Christ in heaven. So we see that there are cosmic powers. There's visible and invisible powers at work. Not just impersonal forces, but actually personal uh, beings here with intelligence. But Jesus is over them all. He triumphed over them all. He, he controls them all because of what happened at the cross. And Jesus himself talks about this during his ministry. One of the places he mentions this is Luke chapter 11. Now, this is, this is the section in which the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of casting out demons using the power of demons, which is a contradiction and makes absolutely no sense. And that's what he's about to say to them. So here's what happens in Luke eleven, fourteen through 23. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, 
then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So in that passage, of course, Jesus is pointing out the contradiction in terms of the fact that how, how is it possible that by the power of Satan you cast out Satan? That doesn't make any sense. And he kind of argues with them, of the kingdom of God has come because I'm doing this by the power of God. And he then uses the analogy of a strong man. Now, the strong man who is armed and guards his palace, that is clearly a reference to Beelzebul or to Satan. And Jesus is the stronger one who attacks him, overcomes him, takes away his armor, and divides his spoil. So Jesus is plundering Satan. Satan has, at this point, he has Israel um, under his control. And Jesus is waging spiritual warfare, casting out the demons, uh, unbinding the people, rescuing them from slavery to sin and from spiritual darkness and spiritual oppression. And he is essentially overpowering Satan and binding that strong man. So this is what Jesus has to say about him and his relationship to Satan's spiritual kingdom. So that is kind of an overview in the New Testament about what, you know, what is going on here with these demons and spiritual forces. Um, So now let's take a look more at, well, what are demons and what do they do? We've already kind of seen a little bit about what they do. Jesus just cast out a mute demon so that this, this demon was preventing this man from speaking. Okay, but what do they do? Well, it's clear that they're not material beings. They're not made of flesh and blood, but they are connected somehow and they interact with this world. They, they abide within the spiritual world or reality in the, in the heavenly places, okay? Now, Jesus just said they're under the authority of Satan. They're, they're part of Satan's kingdom. They can speak and be spoken to. Jesus does interact with the demons, okay, um, many different times during his ministry. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, at least Satan can be disguised as the angel of light. Now, is it possible that all the demons can, can kind of deceive and, dis- and disguise themselves? Perhaps. But what we do know is that at least Satan can. He can disguise himself as an angel of light. Now, another thing about demons is that what accompanies them is not just physical ailments like muteness, but also lawlessness and false signs. And Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, He says, starting in verse 7, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs, and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. 
So here we see Paul describing that at least we know the satanic realm, it is accompanied with lawlessness, but it's also accompanied with power, some kind of power, raw power, demonstration of power, and false signs. Now, what's a false sign? Well, a false sign could be one of two things, something that seems like a sign, but it's just a trick. Just think of like a magician who's not really using magic, just using illusion. It looks like magic, but it's not real magic. But a false sign could also be definitely something supernatural, but it drives you or points you to falsehood. Okay, uh, certainly there were fortune tellers um, in in the book of Acts. Paul encounters one, a fortune teller, who really could uh, tell fortunes by the power of of the demonic, and uh, Paul cast that demon out, and the woman lost her ability to uh, to tell fortunes. So there there are supernatural abilities that we see accompanying the demonic, but also false signs. And then he mentions wonders here, and then wicked deception. So so wicked deception is not just deception, but it's a particularly egregious kind of deception. So that is what accompanies the the spiritual. Um, spiritual evil. This is what accompanies the activity of Satan. Well, what else? Uh, They also accuse. And, you know, the word Satan is derived from the word accuser. He who accuses. um, But we see a, a very direct image of this in the Old Testament book of Zechariah, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And here is what we see. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? So Satan is accusing Joshua and God's people, but they belong to the Lord, and so his accusations have no power. That very much ties into the paying off of debt, the cancellation of the debt of sin upon God's people that Jesus did, that he paid for. And by doing that, he disarmed those rulers. Basically, they have no accusation. They have no legal uh, ground to stand on against the people of God. So, uh, So the devils, the demons... They accuse continually. They're full of deceit and pride. Okay, we see that happen in Acts chapter 13, verse 10. Uh, Paul is talking to this magician, okay, named Elemus, the magician. And this magician is opposing the gospel. And Paul says, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? So, again, we see what's associated with the demonic is enemy of righteousness, deceit, okay, villainy, so evil, and making crooked the straight paths of the Lord, twisting things and making them crooked. We already saw in Ephesians chapter 6 that they scheme and plot. Paul mentions wearing the armor of God to 
um, oppose the schemes of the devil. So they do plan. They do have strategy. Uh, They want to disgrace God's people. That's important. We see this in 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is in regard to the qualifications for elders. And Paul says, moreover, he, the candidate for becoming an elder, must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So again, this concept of disgrace, this ensnaring by the evil one. And of course, they look for opportunities to attack God's people. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, uh, Peter says this, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Okay, so there's definitely a, an aggression there, an opportunity to attack that the devil is looking for. So there's definitely a, a strategy here uh, and, and things that accompany the spiritual realm. Now, now, how do they interact, though, with the world? I mean, okay, they do these things, but how do they interact? And um, I want to go through this fairly, fairly quickly, uh, although I don't think we're going to finish today. We'll probably pick it up next time. But one example would be the entering of Judas. And this is where it is a bit of mystery. But let's let's look at the passage and let's try to put all the pieces together. So in John 13, 27, this is what happened. It says, then after he had taken the morsel, this is Judas. So Jesus had just dipped the bread and gave it to Judas. So after he had taken the morsel, Judas take, takes it, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. And then he then he goes. All right. Now, that's all we know about what does that mean Satan entered him. Well, there's another passage of a different story. This is Ananias and Sapphira, where we get similar language in Acts chapter 5, verse 3. So here's what, what happens, starting in verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? So again, here we have this imagery of Satan filled his heart to lie. Now, how does that, I mean, didn't he just, Wasn't he just a little bit greedy and just wanted to keep some money for himself, but look good, look as if he is uh, giving all his possessions away, but secretly keeping it for himself, which interestingly is the same thing that Judas was doing. Judas essentially was, you know, he was the treasurer for the disciples, the money bag holder, and he would keep some of the profits for himself, some of the donations he probably thought it was an administrative fee that it, you know that he was fully justified in paying himself but he was deceptive everyone thought that he wasn't doing that but he was and in the same way here we have deception and lying to the holy spirit and a and an attempt to look good kind of disguising as an angel of light This is happening both with Judas and with Ananias and Sapphira. So we have in another passage, a little bit less descriptive, but Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, verse 20, 
that there are a few individuals in the church. Uh, he mentions Hymenaeus and Alexander, who are under church discipline, essentially. And here's what Paul uh, says about them. By rejecting this, the gospel, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So there's something associated with blasphemy and Satan. Uh, We also have in the Old Testament, the census that David took, which he wasn't supposed to take of Israel. This is 1 Chronicles chapter 21. At the very beginning, here's what it says. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders in the army, go number Israel. So it's not good. This, This displeased the Lord. Essentially, David is not trusting in God and trust in his own strength as a commander and in the material, physical uh, uh, forces that he had available to him. And he's not supposed to do this, but Satan incited David to do this. So there's something about Satan influencing David, just like he influenced Ananias and Judas in the New Testament to do certain things. We also have the examples of, of Job, and um, you know Job was tested and tempted by Satan. Um, of course, Jesus himself was tested without sin, uh, but tempted uh, in the wilderness by the devil, uh, Peter himself, of course. Um, But we also have this idea that uh, the devil or the spiritual realm can affect not just individuals, but cultures and entire generations. So there's two places in the Old Testament that I want to mention that. Daniel chapter 10, which talks about the prince of Persia, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's it's fairly long, of course. But uh, the angel Gabriel comes to Daniel and says, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. So... There's something going on where the angel is visiting Daniel, but he was in a spiritual battle with the prince of Persia, but then Michael got involved and helped him out. So there's certainly something spiritual happening there. We also see examples of this in descriptive passages, such as Ezekiel 28. This is one of the passages where It is a lament against the king of Tyre. So Tyre is a major maritime city on the coast uh, uh, near Israel. Very wealthy city, by the way. But it obviously was rejecting the Lord and an enemy of Israel. But there's a prophecy at the beginning of chapter 28 of Ezekiel against the prince of Tyre. And it's pretty much talking to a person. But then there is a lament right after that over the king of Tyre. That's interesting. But this lament has nothing to do with a physical person. Here's what it says. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. 
and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. So that, I mean, that very flowery language, I mean, unless unless Ezekiel is simply just wanting to use very flowery language against this human king, that is a description of a spiritual being in the Garden of Eden. I mean, a guardian cherub uh, is an angelic uh, creature. So there is certainly some kind of a mystery here, but but the spiritual realm influences people. It influences kings, it influences uh, nations and cultures, and in fact, I want to give one example in the New Testament that Jesus himself gives regarding the influence of the spiritual over an entire nation. Here is what he says about an unclean spirit. This is Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45, just three verses. He says this, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. So Jesus is talking about, uh, he's giving an analogy an image of a person who was possessed. And this person was cleansed, the spirit left, but then when the spirit comes back, everything's in order, but the person's empty. There's nothing inside. There's no one living there. Essentially, there's no Holy Spirit. There's no, there's no God living there. There's no other good spirit living there, right? And so, hey, the house is empty. That's great. Um, let me go get some more spirits to join in. And they do. And the state of the person was worse than the first. It would have been better to have one demon than seven demons. And then he applies that very lesson to the generation of the Jewish people that he's living in at that time. So there's something interesting there that Jesus is trying to point out regarding the relationship between the spiritual realm and nations, cultures, generations. Now, pretty much running out of time here. But the last thing I want to end on, and then we'll look more about um, about demons next time, is they can affect people physically. And I think everyone who's familiar with the New Testament understands this. Um, and I'm just going to read off just things I, co- I collected as I looked through the New Testament on this, directly attributed to the demonic. All right? A woman who was bound for several years, Luke 13, 16. Uh, the, uh, the spiritual uh, demons can hinder the work of believers. 1 Thessalonians 2.18. They can hinder the spread of the gospel. Mark 4.15. They can give supernatural strength. Mark 5. Verses 3-4. through 4. They can encourage self-mutilation and cutting. Mark 5.5. 5. They can move people to become naked or, or go without clothing. Luke 8.27. They can prevent people from speaking. Matthew 9.32. They can cause blindness. Matthew 12.22. They can cause seizures and fits. Matthew 17, 14 through 18. And they can motivate people to live alone and among the dead places and the graves and the tombstones. 
Luke 8, 29. So that's just a, a brief smattering of all the things that were directly attributed to the demonic activity in the New Testament. All right, so we'll, we'll, we'll stop for today, but what we've seen here is the spiritual realm definitely exists. It, it involves you know, persons, uh, demonic entities that think, that plan, that have strategy. They can affect both a person's body and thinking. They affect ideas, beliefs, individuals, and cultures. But on a good note, they are under the authority of Christ, and they have been subjugated by Christ at the cross. So we'll continue with this topic of the demonic next time. I thank you for tuning in. I hope this was very interesting for you. I encourage you to look through these passages yourself and read them and just reflect on them. And of course, if you have any questions, comments, or other topics you want me to address, please email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com or go on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, look for Governed by God or Eric Leupold, and you can message me there. Uh, So thank you again for tuning in. And until next time, take care and God bless.